Welcome to the Health Ignited Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Nick and Sonia Jensen. We are partners, parents, business partners, doctors, yoga teachers, and retreat leaders. We promise to bring you real conversations to awaken and ignite your potential to live your best life possible. Join us each week as we dive into topics varying from brain health, biohacking, hormones, and longevity, to relationships, parenting, meditation, and more. Together, creating community and building stronger foundations for the generations to come. Hey everyone, welcome to Health Ignited. Dr. Sonia here with Dr. Nick. And Hello. Hi, how are you? Good. <laughs> we have a great topic that Nick and I are always curious about because we have two young boys and we're always wondering what can we do to create healthy, resilient children and compassionate, compassionate kind, all the things that we dream of for our kids. And in the times that we're in today, I feel like there's so many unknowns, so many uncertainties, not only us parents are navigating through, but also our children. So today we have a special guest, uh, Dr. Anisha Abraham. She is a pediatrician and a teen health specialist based in Amsterdam, Netherlands, and on faculty now in Washington, DC. Now in Washington, DC, at the University of Amsterdam and Georgetown University Hospital in Washington, DC. She grew up in the US as the daughter of South Asian immigrants and has lived with her husband and two sons in Asia, Europe, and US. So before we got on the call, we realized we have a lot in common <laughs> from being a mixed couple, South Asian background, passionate about children. So there's gonna be a lot to talk about today. Anisha helps cross-cultural teens manage a wide range of issues from body image to substance abuse, social media use, and stress. I have to say, where were you when I was growing up is the question. <laughs> She leads seminars for teens, parents, faculty, and organizations using her 25 years of global experience as a practicing clinician, military physician, public health researcher, TEDx speaker, and health educator. She's been on, she's, she has been interviewed by NPR, CNN, NBC, Voice of America, RTHK, and the Washington Post. And I have to say, I've watched her TED Talk and everyone that's listening needs to go listen to her TED Talk as well, because you're going to get so many nuggets from there. And I know you're going to get so many nuggets here as well. And Anisha, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So why don't we just talk about what brought you to... First of all, she has a book that's come out, Raising Global Teens, that everyone needs to get, and we're excited to definitely get it. And if you can maybe talk a little bit about what got you to this space of really wanting to work with kids and teens and understanding their brain development and understanding how they function in the world, and what is your story around that for yourself? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. Very excited to have our discussion um, and also that we have so much in common. Um, I'll just say that um, my specialty as a pediatrician is working with young people ages about 12 through 21. And I just found that during my medical training um, that there was so much hope when it comes to working with young people. And if you made a connection with them and you could talk to them about what was going on in their lives and you got them to realize that um, that they could trust you and they could open up that you can make such a connection in terms of all the other things that were happening in their life. And so there's so many young people that are engaging in 
perhaps risky behaviors, um, are not quite sure, and being able to have someone that can go to for good information, I think makes a huge difference in their life trajectory. So I think that's part of the reason why um, I chose to work with young people, to work with adolescents. Um, they continue to inspire me, they keep me on my toes, <laughs> um, they keep me young. Uh, and um, more recently, my passion has very much been working with cross-cultural and multicultural kids, um, partly because of my own background um, as being the daughter of South Asian immigrants. Um, but as you mentioned, I've also had a global journey um, and have married, um, uh, my husband is um, not uh, South Asian and is in fact German and we've lived in several countries. So I've really also started to come to understand the importance of uh, having discussions with young people about their cross-cultural or multicultural experience and helping them to really um, kind of be clear in terms of their identity. Yeah, I think that's huge. You know, growing up myself in Canada um, and, you know, first generation Indo-Canadian and recognizing that I had one leg in one culture and the other leg in another and trying to balance and navigate all the, the differences in those two cultures and growing up as a teen and not feeling understood or not feeling heard and just not feeling supported in my growth because, you know, my parents were still in their mindset living back in India and trying to raise their children the best that they could and in how they understood. So I think it's such an important topic and it's so important for kids to know that there's a safe place to go to where they can feel heard and they can feel supported. Absolutely. So with today's world and all that's happening in the world today with the pandemic and the, the uncertainties, what are some ways that parents can maybe open up conversation or recognize that there might be something that their teen or their young kids are going through and how can they support them through that? That's such an important question. And I will just say that um, young people are feeling very uncertain about the future. Uh, they are and sometimes feeling isolated from their peers or from their family members are not able to travel or connect in the usual ways. Uh, they may be not be able to go to extracurricular activities or have the same routines that they may have had before. And so that's really increased uh, their levels of stress and anxiety and in some cases even depression. And we certainly know among adults that the rates of depression and um, anxiety have increased tremendously over the several, last several months. But we also know that um, the incidence of mental health issues is increasing among young people. And so I think it's really important as parents, as adults, to be aware of how we can support kids right now. Otherwise, I fear that we're gonna have this entire generation of young people that are very much affected both physically and mentally from what's happening. And so I guess the question is, how do we do that? Where do we start? And I firmly believe that conversations um, are very important in terms of building uh, connections and connections are so protective for young people currently. Uh, and these conversations uh, need to be about how young people are feeling, being able to connect with them in terms of whether or not they're feeling stressed or down or sad, and also validating their feelings. So I will just add by saying that I'm asked a lot by parents, how do you even talk to kids? Sometimes it's really difficult. They spend so much time on computers. They don't wanna to talk to their parents as they become older. And my two or three tips related to that is when you have a teenager, uh, one idea is to talk to them when you're doing something in parallel. For example, if you're 
walking with them or you're driving a car or um, you're biking or something like that. So you're not looking them in the eyes because it can be really intimidating if you even think back to your own adolescence to look someone straight in the eye and be talking about these really tough issues. Uh, the other tip is to talk about what might be happening with their friend group. Um, have you had friends that have been feeling down or sad? Do you know anyone that's being stressed? Is there anyone that's been struggling with suicide? Um, that is a great way to start the conversation about what might be happening with them. Um, but it's, again, something that's a little bit removed. So you can start that conversation first with what's happening with peers before you bring it to them. And um, my final thought is it's really important to stay specific about your questions. Um, and again, parents are afraid sometimes to ask specifically, are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling suicidal? Thinking you're more likely to increase a child becoming suicidal. But the converse is true. The more we ask, the more we take away the stigma when, it's, when it comes to mental health issues, the more we normalize these conversations and allow kids to come back when there really is an issue. Mm -hmm. I think it's so important to have these conversations, even just for parents, because as parents, we always want to think that, you know, there's nothing really wrong with their kids. We, you know, they couldn't possibly have a mental health disorder. Maybe they're not just working hard enough or, you know, whatever those like old patterns that, again, we talked about, you know, the cultural upbringing, you know, so much of our own parenting style is just, you know, a mirror of maybe how we learned how to parent and, and not everybody has gone to school for higher education in the world of, you know, pediatrics or, you know, naturopathic medicine or had some sort of tool set that helped them see in a, a bigger version of what's possible. Um, so with, with that in mind, how, how important is it for parents to, you know, put aside that time to dive a little bit deeper, to ask these questions? And, and where, do, where does the average person start with, with these kinds of conversations? I think the short answer is it doesn't need to all be done at one time. Um, it just needs to be done little by little. And um, even just starting a conversation around mealtime or a joint activity um, and checking in with kids is really where it needs to start. You know, again, coming back to how are things going? How are you feeling? How did your day go today? What went well? What didn't? Asking open-ended questions, curious questions, ways that we can connect with our kids and really figure out what's happening in their lives is really important. Um, what I talk about quite a bit in my book is then the conversations can continue from there to go to other really exciting topics like, um, you know, do you know anyone that's been vaping or what about sexting or what about, you know, all of these other issues that are happening in kids' lives. Um, but at the very least, um, talking about emotions and feelings um, and starting slowly but continuing to check in is really, really important. What I would love for you to do is maybe shed some light on the brains of these young kids and why these conversations are so important in how we're navigating them and to be very specific because there's the frontal lobe, there's the limbic system, there's all these things that are shifting and growing and you know, I noticed even at age three, when their hormones start to change and DHEA is on the rise, all of a sudden there's like this shift that happens. And then at age seven, I noticed a huge change in my oldest. And now that he's nine, I'm starting to notice some other changes in his behavior with just his responses. So I know like the brain is like doing its part in developing as is his hormonal system and his worldview and his lens that he's wearing. So if you can maybe shed some light on what happens there. And I think that would give the listeners a better understanding of why it's important to have these conversations. And we can have this expectation that we are just going to be sitting there and the kids are going to come to us and start talking to us about sex or start talking to us about what's going on in their friend circle. 
Well, knowing that brain development is so critical to understanding kids and why they do what they're doing. And I think it's important for parents to know that the brain continues to develop until you're 25 years of age. And that might be shocking because a lot of times we look at teenagers that are say 18 or 19 and they look fully kind of developed. They look adult-like, they act adult-like. Um, and a lot of them are going off to jobs, university and other places. Um, but doesn't mean that they're completely um, making all the connections and making complete adult-like choices. And sometimes there can be some back and forth in terms of what's really happening. And um, what we also know is that there can be some gender differences as well. And sometimes um, men take a little longer to have that brain development happen than women, not all, but um, sometimes that that can happen as well. And so uh, realizing all of this um, and realizing how important for it is for us as parents to support kids as they're going through these changes is key. Uh, one important point that you brought up was this concept of the frontal lobe versus the uh, limbic system. And I think it's important to realize that the frontal lobe has to do with organization and logical thought. For example, if I drink alcohol and I get in the car, it may be a bad decision. Um, and the limbic system has to do with pleasure and reward and trying and testing and experimentation. And what I tell kids is that um, if you are making decisions and sometimes your parents say, why did you do that? You can say, it's because of my limbic system. It's, you know, <laughs> this is the time for me to be experimenting and trying things out. And if we didn't try things out, if we did an experiment, we would lose out on a really important part of our life and our processes and learning from our mistakes. So there's a very important evolution that's happening. But because that limbic system is so strong, again, trying, testing, pleasure, and reward, there's a lot of emotions. There's a lot of feelings. You, um, everything is at a much heightened state than it would be later on in life. And again, that decision-making sometimes can really vary in terms of what's occurring until much later um, in adolescence in terms of when all of those decision-making is made um, at, at the full level. The other important point I'd like to make is when the brain is not fully developed, uh, and again, when you're somewhere between 12 to 13 to 14 years of age, um, any other exposures that you have, for example, you're stressed on a regular basis, you're not eating because you're restricting your eating, you start smoking or drinking, any of those behaviors um, can actually impact the brain um, all the way through adulthood. And it also, if you start smoking or drinking, it's also harder to stop when you become um, an adult because you become addicted at a much younger age. So I tell young people, you only have one brain and you need to protect it. And it's so important if you can to delay some of these things to a little bit later when your brain is a lot further developed because when your brain is still in that kind of work in progress mode, any of these other things that you add onto it can affect your brain throughout the rest of your life. And that's why it, come, it comes again to us as adults to really help young people to make good decisions, knowing that sometimes that decision-making process is still kind of occurring. I got a question for you. Um, let's, let's take this world crisis that we're in right now and rewind it 20 years ago, like back when we were growing up. What do you think the difference, you know, what are some of the main things that you consider, um, you know, difference for, between now and the modern, more digital focused era that we're in versus back then, you know, is it, is it better now because of the, the social platforms and things like that? Or is there more stress? Like, I'm just curious in this timeline of going through this, this global trauma, um, was it better back when there was less technology? 
I have to say it's it's that's a hard question to answer. I think that there's always um, benefits and challenges to any situation. Um, I will also say that I think there's a lot that's wonderful in terms of technology. Um, it's certainly, and I talk about this in the book, um, it certainly has connected us in ways that we never would have been connected before. Um, it allows kids to be able to learn languages, to connect with family members in other parts of the world, to see what's happening in other places. Um, to play video games with someone that's, you know, in Russia or Japan or whatever it is. So, you know, our world is coming to us um, and exposing us to things and making us, you know, able to think much more broadly in some ways because of technology. But also there are inherent challenges um, because of technology. Sometimes it's harder for kids to go outdoors and just play. We're losing free play, you know, just this um, the concept of being out there and being creative and just kicking a ball or, you know, biking endlessly, you know, that is sometimes curtailed. Um, there's also a number of young people that spend a lot of time on social media, for example, and are worried about how many likes they get or how they look on that. It doesn't mean all young people are doing that, but there certainly are some. And for some people that can actually be, you know, not such a positive thing if they're doing it all the time. Um, so, Ensuring that there's balance, I think is important. Um, realizing there's some inherent um, values to, to screens and technology, I think is also useful. It's not going to change. It's only going to increase. So we need to kind of get on, on onto the bandwagon and accept it, but then see how we can work within all of it. So how would you say that this is affecting development of the brain? Like, are there major um, consequences of teens and young kids being on screens for lengthy periods of time, especially with school now? Many schools now are requiring um, kids to be on screens for several hours of the day. And how is this going to impact them in the future? Or maybe it's an unknown because this is probably the first generation that's having to do this much screen time and navigate through this whole new world and parents as well. So what do you see this doing or have you seen this affect teen or young kids behaviors or their relationships with their parents or their relationship with themselves and their, and their group of friends? Like what have you seen socially and what have you seen um, physiologically in these young kids? Right. Well, we, I think we could spend the entire uh, session talking just about the effects of screens on kids. And as I mentioned, I'll start with the positives, which again, I think that um, particularly during the COVID pandemic, screens have been very beneficial to kids in terms of allowing them to connect um, with friends and allowing them to still be able to chat with them, to talk with them, um, to be able to talk about what's happening in their days. So there's been some very positives um, in terms of that piece of, of connection. I think the other side of that is we also know kids are spending a lot more time um, on screens and at least some studies that come out of the US is that kids are up to maybe nine hours a day. They've even increased um, as we've gone to online school because not only are they now taking their classes but then between their classes while they're on breaks, they're on it and then they continue to stay on it. It's really hard for them to sometimes pull away. And so we're now, we know that kids are on screens for longer periods of time. Um, and I think where that can be detrimental is again, where they have loss, loss of that um, time where they're just going outdoors, for example, and they're just, um, you know, being in nature and just exercising, um, you know, being able to talk to people and having real conversations instead of texting or WhatsApping or whatever, you know, some of that can be lost. Um, I just had a conversation with my 12 year old because he wanted to invest in special lights, uh, sorry, special glasses that would decrease the amount of um, 
blue light that he was getting from his computer because he said his eyes sometimes hurt by the end of the day. And I said, actually, I'm not going to invest in these glasses because I really think we just need to cut back on the amount of time you're on your computer. <laughs> we had this long discussion of what happens to melatonin levels when you're on computers, particularly late at nighttime, and whether or not you know these glasses were going to change anything. And um, I think what we learned from that, and again, what I was trying to impart to him is that melatonin levels, particularly when you're on screens very late at night, are disrupted. And that affects sleep cycles, it affects um, growth, it affects even, um, you know, weight and regulation of weight. So there's a lot of things physiologically that are being disturbed by this artificial exposure for long periods of time to screens. So if we can get kids to have, you know, regular breaks, have more exposure to sunlight, particularly during the day, get off of devices by late evening so they can get to sleep. These are things that I think we as parents need to build into their lives. So how do you teach that to young kids to be able to navigate that for themselves? Because one thing that I know happens between parents and kids, and we've experienced this too, because we can see if they've been on screens for too long, it's like their ability to even listen or mm-hmm. communicate well, it just, it's, it's out the window. Yeah. So how do you reduce the, the battling that can happen and so that they can manage their own time and learn how to self-regulate because this is their world? It's a really important question. And one that I talk about in my book a lot is the concept of the three C's that no longer is there a fixed amount of time that we should be on screens. But again, parents are now serving as media coaches. Um, And we're actually really trying to get a sense of what they are doing and trying to provide that support and structure. And so the the concept of the three C's are um, the child, the context, and the community. So you need to know um, the context of what they're actually viewing. And um, if it's something uh, educational, for example, I'm okay with my son being on Khan Academy for hours because I know there's some educational value to it. But if he's playing some kind of mindless video game for hours, for me, that's probably a little bit less educationally stimulating over time, and we need to kind of create that balance. So, you know, what is the context in terms of what they're doing? Um, what's your child like? And some kids have an easy time getting off of something when they're told to stop. Other kids, it's like cocaine. They just can't stop. And some kids also have things like attention deficit hyperactivity or other reasons where they can't control that impulse, and they need a lot more support and regulation by parents in terms of strict times to stop devices or taking away devices and that type of thing. And the final um, component is community. Is your child still interacting with you, still doing other things, and still sleeping okay, eating okay as they get older? Are they even having conversations with you, or is it only through text message? You know, what's how happening around them? And is that a child that's starting to withdraw and not do anything, but just be on their computers, in which case, again, you need to work on some of those controls. So hopefully those are some thoughts or guidelines in terms of what parents need to be thinking about. As I mentioned, there's so much more we can discuss when it comes to screen time. And I'll just finally throw in one of the most beautiful things about living in the Netherlands is that there was such uh, an emphasis placed on kids getting outdoors and having free time and being on bikes. And when we moved there, we learned that Wednesdays were half day and everyone just gets out and plays sports. And then Fridays is one hour late. It starts. People can just sleep in. But there was really this concept of kids should be kids. And it's not just about being on computers, but you just get outside and you just get outside and enjoy and you play and you bike. Um, And the Dutch kids are some of the happiest kids in the world. So I think they're on to something. Oh, absolutely. We we talk about that a lot. (laughs) Yeah, we, we compare the kids in India 
China, all different parts of the world, kids in Africa, look, there's no screens there. <laughs> I don't parts, know if that helps, yeah. but I just think that the concept of culturally that is just invoked in every child that this is important, that this is a priority, that your health is a priority and being outdoors and being mm -hmm. a child and not having to grow up faster than you need to is kind of driven into them. And I think if that's the collective experience, it's a lot easier for children to do that and express that. Whereas here, the collective experience is a little bit different. Yeah, I got a, I got a question on that too, because there's no rule and nor, nor should there be, but some kids in our, in our son's elementary school when he first started going, um, I mean, some of these kids were like, I guess, six years old and they already had their own phone. What do you think as a pediatrician, <laughs> like when's the right time for a kid to have his own device? Because we have yet to give a kid, our kids their device. They, we, they've got ones that we use when we go on vacation or do a long trip or something like that. But they don't, they don't have their device. Um, do, you have a, do you have a suggestion? Well, I'll just say I'm a very unpopular mom in my house. <laughs> so are we. Yeah. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and I firmly believe um, that giving devices in some ways um, means that you really need to start working on all of the other three C's that we talked about. So as much as you can delay those devices, it's important, particularly when it comes to phones. Um, I certainly understand even for young kids, um, the occasional use of computers to play games. Um, in my kids' school in the Netherlands, they actually started using computers early ages for them to do their homework. So much of it was online. So some schools and some kids are early adopters of technology for other reasons. And you certainly have to work with that. When it comes to phones, um, I really believe that as much as you can delay it, as long as it's, again, safe um, and, and whatever else, to delay it, it's better. Because as I mentioned, because of brain development, kids are not always making the most mature decisions. And that then goes to things that they may put on WhatsApp, um, messages they may respond to when it comes to, again, sexting or looking at pornography or all the other things that kids are exposed to when you give them a phone that has a lot of these other apps on it. Um, or even just regulating themselves in terms of just you know, using the phone for what it's based versus looking at YouTube videos and all the other things you can do on a phone. And so I say I'm a very unpopular mom because our son who was 11 and a half at the time, um, one day gave us a five page memo with research from the Pew Quest Foundation and whatever else, outlining why he was the last kid in his grade that didn't have a phone and how come he didn't have a phone and why could he not get a phone and what the data showed in terms of the norm. So we did break down at age 12 and give him one um, more because he was becoming much more independent, being outdoors more. But I think that when you do give a phone, if you can give a more boring phone, that's probably okay. Um, but then you also really need to give them some type of a contract in terms of how they should be using that phone. You should be monitoring it. And you should certainly be having those discussions again about what happens um, related to sexting and pornography and you know, um, people that might try to contact you that are strangers and all of these other things, because there's so much that's out there that we need to also be giving um, kind of some clarity on for our kids when they're navigating this on screens. Mm -hmm. So you, you spoke about social media when it comes to screen time. And um, in the beginning, we kind of touched on, you know, children's mental health and stress, and especially in today's world with all the uncertainty and how amazing it is that we can like connect with somebody across the globe. 
The other side of that piece, um, I know for myself growing up here, I definitely went through a phase of depression and it's something that still I navigate through. I went through anorexia at age 13. There's many different things that showed up. And now, so what, what's happened in my parenting style when I'm looking at my oldest child, who's very much like me, as soon as he goes internal, it's like this like flag goes up for me. It's like, oh no, he's going down the same track that I went in. And, you know, my mind kind of starts making these like stories around what might be happening for him. And so how do we as parents help support our children with social media, with these expectations, with this instant gratification culture with like Instagram and like needing everything right away and having these expectations that, you know, with our Netflix, if one episode is over, the next one's coming where we, we grew up in a world where we had to wait an entire week in order to find out what happened in that mm-hmm. show. I just feel like there's so much more stimulus. There's so much more that their little energy bodies have to navigate. And some children are so sensitive to what happens outside of them. So how do we create that inner resilience and strength inside of them so that they're able to shield themselves from the external negativity or from the external uncertainties um, that are happening and, and is a reality in today's world? No, these are wonderful questions. And I think that the short answer is that we need to realize that our kids are uneven and um, that um, they're going to excel in some areas and they're going to have challenges in others. Um, Also, that it's really important for us to build on strengths. And um, every child has something that they do really well in. I'm going to stop for a second because I think we have some sibling issues. Can you, is it too loud for you or? <laughs> no, it's is fine. It, no, no, you can keep going. Mm, oh, yeah. No, this is ma- perfect. It actually. makes it more real. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> keep going. My husband's going out there to tell everyone to be quiet. So sorry. Would it be better <laughs> if you use headphones? Are you okay? Is it, is, it, is it okay? Is it too loud? No, you're so, good. You're good. Yeah, you're sounds good. good. Sorry. Yeah. I hope you can. Uh, this is a real life moment that that's just right. happened right yeah. now. It's All the so parents good. that are listening are like, yes, she's human. <laughs> um, and so I think it's really important um, to make sure that we are, um, again, um, giving guidelines um, to our kids and supporting them. But I think we were also talking about uh, strengths and realizing that all of our kids um, have things that they excel in and that they um, do well in. For example, one of my sons loves technology. And as a result, during particularly during the time when he was doing more online school, um, he started his own YouTube channel with do-it-yourself projects. And for him, that was passion, an area of um, interest and passion, but it gave him a big boost in terms of self-esteem when other people were seeing these projects and were doing these projects. And he kind of wants to be an engineer when he's older. So he keeps now filming his own little do-it-yourself projects. And so I think it's um, really important for each child to be cultivating this for us as parents to be supporting these things because this is so much linked to self-esteem and over time to resilience. And self-esteem is developed sometime during adolescence. Um, And it's so important to feel confident and strong about yourself because otherwise you are at risk for what other people think about you. And that's where these issues related to body image or eating disorders or using alcohol um, or using drugs, all of these other issues can develop over time. So a lot of what I do is figuring out how we can really build young people's strengths, how we can make them feel as good as possible about themselves, um, because that's so protective. That's like your armor against all those other things that are happening um, that you're exposed to, particularly with social media. 
Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I love how you spoke to the uneven nature of, of the individual personality. I mean, I think as a parent, we can actually take that on as like, here's a really fun project to really learn from our kids and, and learn how to cultivate that desire that's within them. Instead of, you know, looking at the other way, like, oh, geez, the, the older one's way further ahead than the younger one is, or what, you know, finding ways to, to, to critique them is one way to do things, but to, but to actually cultivate their strengths, the way that you're speaking to it is part of that, that, that I think that inner resilience that they get to develop and what a gift as a parent, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to really nurture that strength within them. And, you know, we, we've seen early on just some of the like Earl, this is, he's a total builder. He's an, he wants to be, he's an engineer. He, he'll probably want to work for Lego at some point. Um, he loves building and, and the younger one has just has these the creative, you know, juices flowing when it comes to cooking. And like, he would pick out like specific spices that Sonia would use in her cooking and like critique how she made her doll <laughs> or like whatever it was and, and give recommendations. And, you know, we, as parents, we, we want more time. And because we don't have enough time, it feels like, but, you know, and we want to really support those strengths in such a powerful way. So um, what are some like great little tips or suggestions when you see that light of creativity that turns on in that kid? Like, how, what, what do you what do you suggest uh, to, to support the parents in, in supporting the kids? Well, I just say be aware of these things. And just like your son that loves to build and Legos, like give him more opportunities to do that. Um, one of my sons is right now in a Lego club. It's an after school club that's offered online and um, he loves it. He just loves building. And so give them those opportunities, find out what's out there, find out other friends that can do this with him, just nurture those abilities. Um, and I think it kind of builds on itself when you keep giving them that platform and also remind them about this. Sometimes we don't remind kids enough about what they are doing well. We're very quick. And I'm certainly as a parent guilty of this. We're very quick to tell them what they're doing wrong. You know, you didn't clean the dishes, all your dirty clothes are on the ground, but we forgot to say, you know, what an amazing, you know, project you just created, or, you know, look at that Lego creation that you just had, like, how fabulous is that? Um, or, you know, thanks so much for helping out your big brother with doing, you know, this, this particular thing. So again, coming back to what they are doing well, celebrating it, nurturing it, getting other people involved. I'm a firm believer in having a global village that we can't do this alone. I've certainly enlisted my mother, neighbors, um, you know, all kinds of people when I realized that I just, you know, are not, I'm not connecting with my kids in the same ways, um, or I have a moment where I'm alone and I can't, you know, you know, help them. Um, I've certainly pulled in other people to support me and to help me. So other people can also look at these traits and come up with really creative ways to uphold them as well. So using that global village to support you is really important too. So I read an article several years ago, and I can't remember who was written by, but she was a psychologist and she was writing this article from the perspective of a teen speaking to um, her mother. And most of the article was talking about how in their their experience of their world that they're going to make mistakes, they're going to do the things, they're going to experiment. But all that they desire is a safe place to land and all that they're craving is that we don't give up on them and we mm-hmm. allow them that space to mm-hmm. make their mistakes, to do their things, but to have that space where again, they can like land into this like cushion where they feel mm-hmm. safe and they feel supported yeah. and they feel secure. Yeah. So you as a mom, 
of two boys and also someone that works with teens. How, how do you find, um, you know, because again, we're, we're in such a world of like instant gratification. So even when we're with our children, sometimes we try to guide them and we want the end result right away instead of like seeing what the journey is. So how can we as parents learn to have patience or to understand that, you know, they came through us, yes, but they are living their own destinies and their own lives. And how can we just be better at doing that for us? Because I know for ourselves, like we're always reflecting on what piece of our own traumas or our own experience are we putting onto our children? So how can we as parents navigate that so that we can allow um, these children to do what they need to do without taking it personally or, or without thinking that we've done something wrong and making it about ourselves? I know I feel like I asked like five questions in one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, maybe I'll just take one piece of that question, which is how do we as parents um, help kids to navigate when we ourselves are sometimes, you know, not sure how to do these things or um, are maybe um, also uh, making mistakes ourselves. And I think we just need to remember that just like kids, we are uneven. Um, we also excel in some areas and we struggle in others. And being really open to our kids, I mean, I, I think our kids pick that up pretty quickly. And as they get older, you know, I think they really respect the fact that we say, you know, we are your parents, but we make mistakes too. And we're trying our best. And we are certainly, um, you know, really trying to uphold you in all the ways that you can. But sometimes we get impatient. Sometimes we get frustrated. We get stressed. And if we've done something that has made you frustrated or angry, you don't think it's fair, you know, let's talk about it. But you know, we're sorry, we're really trying to do our best. Because I think if they can hear that, that's really powerful. Um, and again, if there's times where we feel really taxed, and we really can't do it, that's where we have to, you know, turn to others to support us or to help us. And, and there are some times where parents can also benefit from getting counselors or coaches, you know, to help them in professional ways, if need be. Um, but just coming back to the fact that none of us are perfect and that this time in particular is really challenging so that we need to really reduce our expectations of ourselves, um, much less, you know, what we put on others um, is just one part of all of that. But, but being open and honest goes a lot way in terms of our relationship with our kids. So our kids are um, not just ours. I mean, globally, kids <laughs> are being forced to look at uh, multicultural aspects in many different ways and, yeah. and much more of an open conversation around racism and the drama and the, and, and the trauma that we're all being exposed to. This is huge for, for, for teenagers, I think, because this is the first real sense of um, a global antagonism to, uh, you know, on, on a, something on a scale that, you know, we never grew up with. I can't think of, I mean, you grew up differently than I did coming to or being first generation uh, Indo-Canadian. I never grew up with this. Um, this is probably one of our my first global experiences, but I can only imagine what's happening and how what's happening for the kids at this time with with this uh, situation and how, how do we support them? Are you referring specifically to racism and black Yeah, like the 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 whole challenge with, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and, and racism and, and, and coming from your own, you know, different backgrounds into this multicultural world that we live in. Um, 
Because I think a lot of kids are probably confused about that right now. Right. One of the things I talk a lot about in my book is how difficult it is to be an adolescent because you're grappling with these very fundamental issues related to your physical identity and you know, how you appear and all the changes that are occurring. You're also grappling with your sexual and gender identity. And that can also sometimes be really confusing and tough. Um, but on top of that, you throw in your cultural identity for a lot of kids that are, again, growing up with bicultural or multicultural, you know, families or being exposed to it because they're living in a place where it's multicultural or cross-cultural. That also can sometimes be confusing. And that a very important process during adolescence is being able to, um, over time, be comfortable in, in those identities. And um, realizing that and realizing that cultural identity is one piece of that is, is really important for parents. And we don't always talk about those issues. And so coming back to these questions of, you know, um, who do you really identify with? You know, who's your tribe? These are important questions to ask our kids. And one of the things I talk about a lot is what is your story? And us as parents to be talking about what is my personal story? Um, I talk about the fact that my dad came on a Spanish cargo ship from South India and it took 40 days to come from this port in Kerala all the way to New York City. And he said nobody spoke any English on there. And, you know, it was, you know, quite this journey. Um, and my parents had an arranged marriage. I mean, you know, everyone has their story and their the values that come with it and um, how that maybe explains a lot of who they are. So knowing your story, getting kids to talk about that story, talking about identity and who's their tribe and who they identify with are really important. And giving kids roots and connections in their community is the other part of it. So regardless of what your background is, then how do you connect with the community around you? And I think then it's really important to talk about how do we connect with the community around us with kindness and with grace and to treat people around us as we would treat you know anyone else that we love or respect um, and to be able to be compassionate. Those are really important messages that we need to be giving to our kids um, at a time where there is a lot of racism and prejudice and, and other things that are around us. Um, and having really good conversations. Sometimes our kids catch us on this and they, you know, they are, they do a better job um, of being kind of colorblind and being open um, in ways that we aren't, uh, but continuing to have dialogues and to continue to talk about how we can have impact and be compassionate, I think is one piece of that. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we've talked about so many amazing things today and a lot for us for sure to think about and all the parents that are listening what would be your top three or five tips for parents right now that they can start implementing today with their kids? <laughs> so my first tip I will go back to is just the importance of conversations. And I would encourage all of your listeners to think about what they can talk about um, with their kids. And again, it can start slowly, but um, use that time where you're doing something else um, to maybe just start to chat about how they're feeling and how they're doing. And like I said, um, maybe start with what their friends are doing first. So going back to those conversations, continuing to have conversations, I think is key. Um, another uh, big tip um, would be, again, thinking about what those unique strengths are that we discussed and um, being able to identify two or three things about your kids and how you can continue to build and nurture on them. Nurture them would be really helpful. Uh, number three, I'm a huge supporter of what I call building your anti-stress toolkit. Uh, and that means that we need to um, help kids to build a little kit of different things that they can go to when they get stressed out. And that can include things like, 
kicking a ball, listening to music, connecting with a friend, doing it's a moment of mindfulness or yoga, which I think are fabulous and that we don't do enough of, and we certainly can get our kids to do more of, um, but making sure there's a couple of things that they can go to as they're young to start to you know bring down that stress level and those anxiety levels and that kit they continue to rely on as they get older and modeling that as parents but having an anti-stress toolkit i think would be another important piece of that um, thinking about the importance again of routines and structure and having some non-digital time that we talked about um, is also key and just you know getting kids to get out there and play um, if we can um, those those i think are all really important and perhaps the last piece is how do we bring more compassion and kindness into our lives and model that for our kids to make this place just, you know, a, a better world around us. I love those. Mm-hmm. So in the last few minutes, I have a last question for you. Um, so as a mom to two young boys, if you knew you just had a little bit more time left, <laughs> what? <laughs> oh God, you're going to make us all cry. <laughs> <laughs> and you had to write them a letter about being their mom and what you've discovered about them. And it doesn't have to be details, um, but what what is it that you would want to shine a light on for them? Oh boy, you're really making me cry right now. <laughs> Even thinking All about- of us. <laughs> I think it's probably a good exercise for anyone to do. Um, I, I would probably just start by saying how humbling it is to be a parent. And particularly as a pediatrician, where you think you know your stuff, Um, And particularly as a a pediatrician that works with lots of other young people and I've been doing it for a very long time. um, It's very, very humbling to be a parent. Um, You learn so much from your kids on a daily basis. You learn about um, what you're sometimes not doing right, even though you think you're doing it right. You think you're, you know, creating all of these routines and healthy values or whatever else. And sometimes you get tested and you realize that the approach probably wasn't correct but you also learn just beautiful things about your kids that you've imparted and comes out in very different ways about how, what they're doing and how they're interfacing in the world around you. And, um, you know, it's, it's just amazing what they sometimes can share and, and, and have you learn as well. Um, so I, I would just say one very large part of my letter would be how humbled I am and how much I've learned from my kids. Oh, thank you. Love that. Yeah. Thank you so much. So everyone listening, you have to get Dr. Nisha Abraham's book. It is called Raising Global Teens. You got to watch her TED Talk. She's got a great website with some great information. And is there anywhere else that our listeners can find you? Yes, they can go to my website, which is dranishaabraham.com. And they can also sign up. I have a monthly newsletter called Global Teens. And I'm on Instagram at Dr. Underscore Anisha. Great. Amazing. So yeah, yeah, we'll put all those in the show notes and a link to your book. And um, we plan on reading the book and we would love to have you back to dive into some more of these conversations because there's some juicy areas that I think that all parents need to tap into um, uh, and and to have open dialogue around. So uh, we look forward to having another chat with you down the road. Great. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Health Ignited podcast. Be sure to download, subscribe, and share as we build this conscious community together. You can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and our website, drsjensen.com. Please note all information on this podcast is not and should not be taken as medical advice. Please see a healthcare professional to receive the care needed. Thank you for sharing this time with us, igniting your health freedom. And welcome to the tribe.